San Franciscan Frank Matriciano has gained notoriety as an eccentric, some call him nearly psychopathic, athletic trainer. His unconventional, insanely difficult techniques have earned him, I guess behind his back, the nicknames Crazy Frank and Hell's Trainer. When training with him, his clients call him Sir. But Frank works primarily with professional athletes, even Navy SEALs, some of the toughest-minded, most determined physical specimens on the planet. And yet he says that 70% quit on him. They have to be somebody to sign up. But 70% nonetheless quit. He says some quit within minutes. And some quit within minutes, having guaranteed him that they were among the toughest on the planet. Frank's demands are physically impossible, his trainees report, unless you begin to follow his directive and think differently. It's not just physically perform differently, but it's even think differently about your body. As hard as his training is, he claims that the whole thing is 90% mental. And those who stick with his regimen to the end return to their professions with transformed bodies. Now, I understand the analogy breaks down on a lot of levels. We can't read theology into this. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we've been working through in Matthew chapters 5-7 through is like an intense spiritual training regimen for his followers. Over the past weeks, we have ascended the hill and we've gathered at Jesus' feet and we've been hearing His counsel as He works us over in spirit. He works us over, subjecting us time and again to a rigorous testing of our spiritual lives. In this training... Jesus exposes our spiritual flab. He exposes the weakness of our spiritual muscles and our wavering affections for His kingdom and His righteousness. He continues to put them on display. He continues to call us to what we do not find easy and wonder even if it's possible. In fact, as we've come to this place in our journey through this sermon, we understand those people who enthusiastically climb the hill to learn at Jesus' feet and then quit and walk away disillusioned. We understand His robust counsel is not at all for the weak souls or the wavering hearts of this world. As we submit to Jesus' training His training of our heart, as we submit to it on this hill, we know it is very good. We know that Jesus loves us. We welcome this training, but we also realize that we are being rocked to the core of our beings. We see ourselves as wholly insufficient for these things. And yet there's this prospect. Those fully trained by Jesus' words are chiseled and they are sculpted into something more than we were. 
as we hear His words, as we respond to the revelation, we are being changed. And as we come then today to Matthew 7 and verse 7, we find Jesus addressing this very weakness in us in response to this sermon in a way that He's really not spoken yet to this point in the sermon. So in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, Jesus provides two key perspectives, two relational tools that are critical to our pursuit of the spiritual maturity that Jesus seeks to nurture within us. If we learn to think this way, by His grace, this sermon will begin to chisel us and transform us into the likeness of Christ. For reasons that I hope to note here in just a few moments, I take 7, 7 to 12 as finishing off the body of the sermon. Verses 13, chapter 7 and following, serve then as something of a final flourish of appeal that we align our lives with Jesus' perspective. I'll bring this out, Lord willing, soon. But here in verses 7 through 11, Jesus looks at our relationship to God in light of the entire sermon and He commends to us a life practice. I give to you this life practice. In something of summation, I say this, pray persistently that God will give you a pure heart. This as a life practice, pray persistently that God will give you a pure heart. Now, I'll need to defend that summation of what Jesus has said in these verses. But I think this statement strikes at the heart of what he is saying, even though purity of heart does not explicitly demonstrate itself here in the text. Well, you judge as we work through. We'll get back to it. I'll repeat it again at the end. But let's look at verses 7 and 8. Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What do these verses have to do with the preceding context? They seem to kind of starkly introduce themselves and maybe not be connected to what we see before. Is he saying... That this is, is this a separate saying? Is it isolated? Or is Jesus saying something connected to what has gone before? I think he is to some degree. But before we address the connectivity to the context itself, what is Jesus even talking about? Is he saying, ask your boss for a raise tomorrow and, you're, and you'll get it? Promising you that. Is he talking about knocking on the door of educational opportunity? Is he saying, ask that girl out and God will turn her heart and she'll say yes? Is that what he's saying? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Is that his point? No, of course not. The last half of verse 11 clarifies what Jesus is talking about. When he says, your father who is in heaven will give good things to those who ask Him. That balances what we're, how we're to understand what He's saying here. He commends here a habit of appealing to God. 
I say habit because the imperatives here, ask and seek and knock, are found in a tense that indicates ongoing action. There are a few who minimize this reality, but I think most rightly stress this as significant. We are appealing to God in prayer as a persistent practice of life, asking Him, seeking Him, knocking at His door that He would give us good things work that out in a moment. But we also note the three commands grow with increasing intensity. Asking is one thing, seeking is something a little bit more, and knocking is something further. They all go together, they're used synonymously in one sense, but there does seem to be something of a progression here. The progression that plays out in our home every once in a while uh, I can't find Beth. I don't know where she hides. I haven't figured this out, but even you know this sprawling place that we own, I can't find her. It's not that big a place. but I, So I ask the kids, have you seen Mom? No, nobody's seen her. That's what they always say, but just about it seems like. But Because she's in a tough spot. But I ask. Then what do I do? Then I go look. I go seeking her out. I go upstairs and downstairs and looking through the windows into the backyard and say, where is she? And then... I knock. Well, not literally. What do we do? It's embarrassing to me, but you get out your cell phone and you call somebody who's living in your own house. I can't find you. Where are you? We do this all the time, just naturally. We ask, we seek, we knock. God is saying to us, do this with me. Not because you can't find me. That's not the the application but with, in, with persistent intensity, I want you to develop a way of life where you are always asking and seeking and knocking in your relationship with me. So back to the question, why does Jesus speak of prayer at this point in the text? We could take this saying as random, that it just lands here and he said a lot of other things and so Matthew just puts it here. But I think he puts it here in this sermon for a reason. The prayer of which Jesus speaks is to a large degree a knocking at heaven's door for the virtues Jesus has been teaching his followers to pursue. So if we start where Jesus starts, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 5.3. Or, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the like. We are to come before Him in abject spiritual poverty. And all that this sermon has taught are the good things that God will give as we ask and seek and knock. Ask and it will be given to you. What is the it? What it is He giving? Is it anything I might happen to fancy at any time? Of course not. It and what we will find and what will be opened is directly connected to the entire sermon. It is determined by the sermon itself and by the verses that now follow. Ask, seek, and knock. Keep persisting in prayer to God your Father. Verse 9, Which of you... If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The answer is obvious. None of Jesus' listeners would be so cruel. 
Now Jesus clinches the point with an argument from the lesser to the greater. Who would do that? Verses 9 and 10. Verse 11, if you then, who are evil, the lesser, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, the greater, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So this verse, I think, unlocks the meaning of verses 7-10. through 10. Jesus counsels us to pray persistently that God would give us good things. God is flawlessly and infinitely good. And every good gift comes from Him. Contextually then, what more would God long to give His children than the kind of heart that is filled with the virtues of this sermon that we've been considering? We note the contrast here in verse 11 between evil and good. By speaking of us as evil, I believe that Jesus affirms the doctrine of human depravity here. He does not share the popular belief of our day that people are innately good, that they are naturally full of light. He says, you being evil, you being sinners... By nature, we are filled with evil thoughts. We are filled with, we, we live out evil deeds. We speak wicked words. And we nurture godless attitudes. We are evil people. And yet, we give good gifts to our children when they ask. And so Jesus affirms human depravity, but I think he also affirms the doctrine of common grace here. That is, evil people give good gifts to their children. They're really good gifts. There are evil people who hate their children and do everything they can to harm them. We know of this. But there are indeed evil people who do good things to other people. God's common grace never eliminates the depravity of sinners, but God's common grace does temper it. On some level, in some way, though not ultimately to glorify God, on some level, in some way, they do good things. They care for their children. They give them good gifts. But the point here, of course, is that God is wholly good and the source of every good gift. And if even sinners can do this, what will your father do? How do you think he'll act? How do you think He'll respond? And, by the way, He is our Father. This is no small thing. The pagans knew only gods who were arbitrary and aloof and capricious. They might listen to you. They might not. They might lash out against you in anger for no apparent reason. Or they might just turn a deaf ear. Ignore that you're even there and asking them for anything. Your prayers to the gods might accomplish something. They might accomplish nothing at all. They might bring you great grief. You never knew. But Christian, let's not miss the significance of this. We have a heavenly Father who is perfect. He loves us. He would never abuse us. He would never abandon us. He would never fail us 
ever. You love your children. You can only begin to imagine how your heavenly Father loves you. They ask you for something that is good. You don't give them something bad. You respond in a loving way. You have such a father. In fact, as verse 8 indicates, he will indeed always answer for our good. Stott quotes Calvin this way, saying, Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. This is a promise of God. He will give you good things. As Wright puts it, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. That, I think, is at the heart of it. Do we ask for wrong things? Yes, we do. And God, as a merciful Father, doesn't give them to us. But the issue here is not that so much as it is not asking for the right things. That we don't do either. What virtues are lacking in your character? Let's think about this isn't This isn't just a child's play. This is our Father talking to us about how to relate to Him in light of all that Jesus has said in this sermon. What matter of spiritual maturity is deficient in us? We want to consider it and we want to respond to it with persistent, persevering prayer. Asking God about that. Whatever it is. Whatever those lacking virtues are. Do you sense down deep as we think of this sermon to some degree and just respond to it? Do you sense down deep that you have not been given a new heart by Jesus? You say, I know facts about Jesus. I read the Bible. I pray. I try to do Christian things. But I really don't have a sense that I've been made new. That I have the Spirit of God. Ask Him. Pray persistently that God would do a work that you cannot produce in yourself. Do you struggle with anger? Do you find it really easy to hate your enemies? Keep asking God to purify your heart. Do you battle sexual temptation day after day? Keep on asking God to purify your desires. The battle is in part prayer. God will give good gifts to those who ask. Are you tempted to perform righteous deeds so that others see you? Very conscious of who's looking on and who's not? Keep asking God to remove the root of hypocrisy and pride. Are you given to worry and anxiety? Keep on asking God to give you a heart of peace. Not by removing your trials, but by increasing your faith in Him. Does your heart love money? Keep on asking, seeking, and knocking that God would liberate you from this bondage. Are you impatient, critical, judgmental in your attitudes toward others? Keep asking God to fill your heart with love. 
As we consider the Beatitudes, are you poor in spirit, grieved by sin, meek? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you merciful, sincere in your dealings with others? Are you a peacemaker, rejoicing in persecution? No, me either. But let's keep asking and seeking and knocking. Jesus is saying to us, Here's how you respond to that weakness. Here's how you respond to what seems the impossible call to moral perfection that Jesus issues here. Here's how you do it. Keep on praying for it. And I want to ask you, do you think God will turn a deaf ear to that? Our problem is not necessarily or at least only that we ask for wrong things. It's that we don't ask for the right things. Jesus is teaching us, molding us to be people who pray these things into reality. For ourselves and for one another. Wishful thinking, power of positive suggestion, not at all. We have a sovereign Father who rules and can change hearts. Isn't that a great truth? He changes people. He's changing us. And as we ask Him to do it, He'll do it. Now James reminded us that we have not because we ask not, and we ask and receive not because we ask to satisfy our, our own lusts. If what we ask in prayer honors Christ and purifies our hearts, we can't be far off. We can be mistaken, but if we can be confident that what I pray honors Christ and what I pray will purify my heart and the heart of those for whom I'm praying, I'm on track and I'm doing business with the sovereign of the universe. We might stop, though, here and say, why? Why must we persist in prayer? If God already knows what we need, why do we have to keep asking Him? And if He really knows that we need it, why does He delay? Well, here's the answer. I have no idea. Right? I don't know. He's not shown us that page in his notebook. It's not because he's mean. He's not dangling good gifts out there in front of me saying, you know, if you keep asking, maybe someday I'll give it to you and just playing, toying with us. We know that. It's not because he's stingy. It's not because he's disinterested. It's not because he's on vacation. We know this. The question is not whether he is ready to give. But probably, as, as Carson has said, whether we are ready to receive. Now that's not an answer. I said I don't know. And I don't know and we're never going to know but I think we get at least into the range of understanding. It's not about being ready to give. It's about whether we are ready to receive. I can't possibly know when I'm ready. I just can't. 
God receives our petitions and He has a million things to work out in conjunction with our requests. Things we don't understand. We need to trust Him. We need to persevere whether we understand it or not. Now, this is just a minor delay. For God, the delay could be the rest of our lives. But as we're just dealing parents and children in the real world and thinking about how God our Father treats us, we ask often parents for that when our children make uh, offer a request or give us a request, we say, you need to say please, right? Why do we do that? Why do you do that, loving parent? Is it to put the kid in his place? Make sure they know we're the big people who can give things to them. Is that why we say, say please? Is it just about courtesy, that we're teaching courtesy to others? We're certainly doing that, but is that the reason we say you must first say please? Is it not when we work with children and say you must say please, is it not that we want to be sure that our children's hearts are ready to receive what we're going to give them? If there's a demand that's there, they're not ready. If there's a disinterest that's there, they're not ready. We just want them to slow down, to look us in the eye, and to consider in this relationship, as I'm asking mom or dad for something, I need to say, please, if you please, you're the sovereign. Not in the ultimate sense with mom and dad, but that's what we say with God our Father. You're the sovereign. And for us, the please may take the rest of our lives. God has so much more to work out than we do when a child asks for a piece of bread and we say, say please and give it to him. The things we're asking about make me poor in spirit. Make me one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Make me a person who is genuinely meek in the biblical sense of the term. These things don't happen easily. And God is working out all kinds of issues. We have to trust Him. He doesn't answer every prayer when we want it. And when we think of God working out all of the pieces to it, how many times would the answer to our prayer be a no to someone else? Or cause trial or difficulty. We don't understand this. We think of such a, from a, such a self-centered perspective that we can't think through all the pieces that God puts together. Illustration of it. Hughes tells a story of Howard Hendricks who in his youth was an attractive young man and apparently quite the catch because he said mothers openly expressed their desire for him to marry their daughters all the time. That never happened to me. I, I, I'm jealous, but... He said that one mother actually said to him, Howard, I just want you to know that I'm praying that you will become my son-in-law. He solemnly looked at his class and said, have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? (laughs) Isn't that great? That just illustrates in a humorous way, but God didn't answer that prayer. Putting it together to all the prayers that are lifted to our Father Only He knows how to work that all out. He knows how to run a universe. We don't. So when we come to Him persistently in prayer, sometimes we come to learn that our prayers are inappropriate. That they do not fulfill His will. 
Keep praying, keep asking, keep knocking. But trust your Father. There are other times when what we're praying for, He will bring about in His good time, in His way. We aren't on the page of His notebook that explains all of this. But keep praying. He will be good to us. He will never fail us. Our job is to be patient and persistent. It may take the rest of our lives, but we must not quit on Him. Some here today, I'm confident, are weary. You're just weary of praying that God would hear this cry of your heart. Don't be weary. Don't give up. Walk with Him until you meet Him. Now in verse 12, we find what seems to be a fairly random statement again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It doesn't seem to really fit with verse 13, and it doesn't necessarily seem to fit with verses 7 through 11 that we've just considered. But what is the connection? I said we'd come back to this. Here we are. Go to chapter 5 and verse 17. You'll find something interesting here. In chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we have to make a decision. It's not necessarily the case, but it seems to be, as we get back to 7 and verse 12, this reference to the law and the prophets serves as something of a bookend. It's encapsulating what goes between this return to the theme of the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I don't think it's a mistake that here at 7.12, he comes back to this idea of how we can fulfill the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? All that God has revealed in his written word, what we would understand to be the Old Testament today. So all of God's revealed law can be applied in life by use of this easy-to-remember tool. So, seeing the whole sermon, Jesus trains us to take up a life practice. Pray persistently for a pure heart that is filled with Christ-like virtue. Learn to pray persistently that way. Then, secondly here, a life rule. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. He's summarizing all that he said, giving us these two tools, a life practice and a life rule, treat others the way you want them to treat you, that will help us to fulfill God's will. It's a simple, straightforward rule. He states it here in positive terms, and much has been made out of that by commentators that it's positive and not placed in negative terms. I wouldn't overplay that point because I think there's some evidences that of philosophers prior to Christ who made somewhat similar statements. It doesn't matter who said it first. It doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. Although I would say that putting it in positive terms makes us a lot more busy people than simply not doing to others what we don't want them to do to us. This is positive action moving into their lives, actually doing to them, doing for them what they want, what we would want them to do for us. 
But back to the point at hand, we live our lives with constant, persistent self-interest. What you wish that others would do to you. It's assumed that we know what that is. We understand it because that's how we live. We are sensitive to the temperature, to hunger, to feelings, to our convenience, pain, goals, ambitions, and reputation. We're very aware of these things in our lives. We don't have to be coached about it or taught. We are aware. We don't have to think because we're so concerned about ourselves. And let's admit it, we do not naturally take up that same orientation toward others. Especially toward our enemies. We just don't. It's not how we naturally respond. So Jesus again provides a vigorous, seemingly impossible training regimen here. It's a simple tool. It's not hard to understand. Hard to apply. But not to understand. It is simply this. Treat others the way that you would want them to treat you. What a tool this is. I don't have to wonder all the time what God might will. I don't have to form a list of endless rules to determine my actions with others. I need to love others as I love myself. I may be dealing with some really hard people at work, some very difficult neighbors. The challenge may be with my husband or my wife. Jesus is saying on his hill of discipline, get this tool in hand. Do to them what you'd want them to do to you. Now we can easily say, they're not doing to me what I want them to do. That's not his counsel. Go to work and do what you'd want them to do to you. That may not always work in the sense of their receptivity to it, but that's always the right orientation. And it doesn't mean that we don't discern what it is that they might uniquely want and ignore that and say, I'm just going to do what I think I would want done in this situation. That's not what he's saying, of course. What he is saying is love your enemies. And love everybody else, too, the same way. Actively do what you would want them to do to you. That's a life skill. That's a life rule that's difficult to apply, not hard to understand tremendously useful. So with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ, this would certainly include praying that God will enable them to grow in the virtues of this sermon. That we would be seeking, knocking, asking the Lord to produce this within our lives and the lives of others. So the more we grow and come to know what pleases our Father then, it would seem the more we will experience answers to our prayers and skill in our relationships with other people. We'll come to know how God thinks. We'll put that into practice. 
We need to read God's promise concerning prayer here, not as getting all the things we want, as if God were an indulgent, thoughtless, weak-willed father. We should think of his promise here more in terms of becoming someone that we are not. And as we pray to that end, he promises to answer our prayers. The question is, do we want to change? Will I really pray to this end, desiring the change that he wants to bring about? Jesus demands change that learns to love our enemies and to do good to them. But again, such change is possible because he loved his enemies and we were those enemies We, he says, are evil givers of good gifts. Jesus is the all-good shepherd of our souls. And His training regimen is not meant to bring us up to the hill and say, you can do this. If you'll just work harder, if you'll exercise your spiritual muscles, you can do this. I think here, if it is true that this binds up and closes up the body of his sermon, what he's bringing us to is all of this should lead us to persistent prayer that God would give us and grant to us what he commands. That I cannot, in my own strength, live as Christ calls me to live But by following his teaching and by applying this life practice of persistent prayer and this life rule of treating others as I want them to treat me, by putting that into practice on a daily basis with persistence, I will be trained to be more and more like Christ. A lot of such trainees quit because they come in self-dependence. I can do this I'll follow what Jesus says here, and disillusion they leave. And if Frank loses 70%, when we climb the hill of Jesus' instruction and we seek to obey Him in our own strength, Jesus loses 100%. Somewhere along the line, whether it's in the first moments or it's after a life of many years of trying to please Christ, Jesus loses 100% of those people. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of those people who comes to Christ and says, I'll be your obedient servant. I will show you how strong I am. You will soon be exposed as incredibly weak and you'll quit. Where he is bringing us in all of this doesn't end at Matthew 7. It carries through to the rest of the New Testament and we see in all of it that he is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. That we, as we strive to that end, must do so in his strength and in his grace. And here is where we come again today in our singing, in our time together in God's Word to remember that we are here because Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin. We are evil people, but He has come to pay the cost. He has come to give us life in His name through His resurrection. And He now preaches to us with a fuller revelation than was true of these who first heard the sermon. 
And with that fuller revelation, we know that He is our righteousness. So, Christian, keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Keep praying that God will produce in your life what is good, and He will, in His time, slowly but surely, as we're ready. And may we learn to relate to this world in a Christ-honoring, unique manner in which we treat others as we would have them to treat us. Let's take this life principle and this life rule and run for the glory of Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge that we need Your aid. We fall very short of Your call upon our lives and cannot match the glory of Your name or accomplish in our own strength what You desire. We come before You today pleading that You will produce what You have commanded. We know we are responsible to act. We don't sit around waiting for You to do what we refuse to do. But we also know that the strength comes not from us. And so we ask for Your help. There are some who are blinded by their sin and have not come to know Christ as Savior. We ask that they would respond today to this message. They'd see, I need to repent of my sin and I must trust Christ as Savior. For those of us who know You, I pray that we would be drawn to the teachings of our Savior and that we would really want it. That we'd want it to the degree that we pray for it persistently and pray for not only ourselves but for one another that we would do to others what we want them to do to us to pray in our behalf that God would work and change us and transform us into the likeness of Christ and may this prayer this persistence in prayer mark not only our private lives but mark our life together as a church as we persistently hold one another up in prayer pleading that you will answer our call that you will give your good gifts of Christ-likeness. To this end, we pray and continue to pray, asking that you would be glorified in your church. Through Jesus, we ask it. Amen.